Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, I invite you to turn with me to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3, we enter the final chapter of this prophet. This evening we are going to be considering verses 1 through 7. Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word this evening, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we confess to you and we praise you for the wonderful things that you've taught us thus far, for the wonderful things that you've shown us about yourself, your great wrath and jealousy, your judgment, but also your great comfort to your people. Uh, we, we thank you, O Lord, for the salvation that is ours, the redemption, the deliverance, the rescue that is pointed to in this prophecy, we thank you for our salvation and redemption in Christ. And, O oh Lord, as we consider these first few verses in chapter 3, we pray that your spirit would be with us and at work in us, O oh Lord. Encourage us, convict us, and show us, Lord, what you would have us to learn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Nahum chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here now, the holy, the inspired, the infallible, and inerrant word of God, written for you and for me today. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. And it shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ, with all of the great detail of the coming pouring out of God's wrath on Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, with all of the intricate descriptions and the scenes that, that practically jump off the pages at us, some of you may be wondering... Why does God spell all of this out in the way that he does? Why didn't he just tell them that they would die? They would all die and be cut off and, and be done with it. And further, what's the benefit of reading and studying these portions of these prophecies, these threats, 
and promises today. What do we take from them? There are many things that we have learned and been blessed with in these brief yet meaty chapters. We've learned much about God's character, attributes of His that we may have forgotten or don't think much about. We've learned about God's sovereign and decisive actions and the surety that the people had that they would come to pass. We've learned and been blessed by the clear proclamation of the gospel and Nahum pointing us to Christ. We've heard the good news of the wrath and the justice of God. We've heard the good news of the salvation and deliverance that God brings and gives to His people. We've seen the comfort that He gives us in the midst of affliction and distress, haven't we? All of these things, again, are are ultimately evident through the person and work of Christ. And it was important for Nineveh to hear and to know the many aspects and, and the layers of divine opposition that God would bring in all of its detail. It was important for Judah to hear these same words, but for a different reason. The Ninevites had little regard for human dignity or in their selfish pursuits. When God would turn the tables on them, they would find that their total destruction was proportional to what they deserved. Just as it took some ink to spell out the atrocities that the Assyrians had committed in their conquest, likewise it took some ink to communicate God's long list of punishments for their crimes. And so in God's proclamation of their pending doom, he taunted the Assyrians, didn't he? We saw that last week. In essence, he was saying, where are you at, O great Nineveh? Where are you? Where is your great den, you lions of death? You have no safe place to lay your heads. You have no prey to feast upon and feed your young with. Your days of devouring are done and gone. God would take it all away. For the living Lord of hosts was against them. And again, we find that in Nineveh, excuse me, in Nahum, we see an unfolding exposition of the character of God as it applies to a ruthlessly evil nation. We find God continuing to lay out the evidence against Nineveh, the things that he would do to Nineveh and the reasons why in our text tonight. As God pronounces a woe against them and moves closer to concluding his description of the sentence that he would carry out for their many sins. And so let's look at that woe in verse 1. Let's look at the chariots and the corpses in verses 2 through 4. As well as the public humiliation that God would bring about in verses 5 through 7. But see this divine woe against Nineveh in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, says the Lord. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs, he says. My friends, though God has already been laying out his threats of what was to come, here with this woe, we find him pronouncing a formal and a comprehensive threat regarding the many and great calamities that would come. This passage communicates that guilty people would be slain 
and justice would be done. Guilty people would be slain and justice would be done. Now how does God describe Nineveh here? He begins by calling it a bloody city. A bloody city. Literally, the Hebrew means city of bloods. City of bloods. And when the plural is used here, it always refers to blood shedding and blood guiltiness. Blood shedding and blood guiltiness. And not only was it a statement of fact that, the, that Nineveh was a bloody city, but this reference points to all kinds of murderous atrocities that they committed. In fact, the kings of Nineveh were known to write about and to chronicle their atrocities. In fact, Asher Nasirpal II, who reigned from 883 to 859 BC, wrote of what he did to the rebels in the city of Tela as he made examples of them. And he wrote in this chronicle, I built a pillar over against the city gate, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes around the pillar. I cut the limbs off the officers who had rebelled, Many captives I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. Now, I could read on. That's not the end of what he had to say. But he gets even more graphic in his description of what he did. Again, bloody city. Bloody people is a very accurate description for the Ninevites. And yet Nineveh, isn't the only bloody city or city of bloods in Scripture, is it? Now, Ezekiel called Jerusalem the same. Not only because she had been guilty of bloodshed, but because her crimes in general were bloody crimes. And we find this to be true in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 23, where we read, Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood. And the city is full of violence. And therefore, God pronounced a woe on that bloody city as well in Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel 24, beginning in verse 6, there we read, thus, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece, on which no lot has fallen. For her blood is in her midst. She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. That it may raise up fury and take vengeance, I have set her blood on top of a rock, that it, that it may not be covered. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe! To the bloody city. I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot and its bronze may burn, that it 
that its filthiness may be melted in it, and that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies. Her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore, till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent, according to your ways, and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. Very strong and very descriptive words of what the Lord would do to them because of their filthiness, because of the scum, because of the sin and the wickedness that had been committed by that bloody city, even Jerusalem. This is exactly, my friends, what God is doing to Nineveh. He is showing them all of their abominations, right? Chapter 3 isn't the beginning of where he started to lay this out. Right? We saw this coming in all the way in chapter 2 and onward. He would expose their scum and filthiness as well. And their crimes went far beyond murder. What did Nahum say? Nineveh was full of lies. They didn't tell the truth. They weren't honest. They weren't trustworthy. But were rather deceitful in their diplomacy, in their dealing with other nations. They lied in the things that they said, or the agreements, or the compacts that they came to. They also robbed others, and they didn't care about what they stole, or who they stole it from. As long as it was theirs, they were fine. And Nahum says, its victim never departs. Nineveh was never short of people to pursue and to take advantage of. Remember Sennacherib. Remember Sennacherib and his many, many conquests. City after city after city that he would conquer and plunder, and there was always one that was coming next. Nobody was out of his reach, and he was determined to take them all. Sennacherib and his army would have their way. You know, they would have their way with some, they'd move on to the next, and there was always a next. And so grave sins and violations of God's law are highlighted here. Murder, lying, and theft, all of which they would pay dearly for. And Nahum then goes on to paint a very similar scene to the speed and the chaos of the chariots that we saw in chapter 2, verse 4. Do you remember that? Remember they're raging in the streets. They're carrying the torches with lightning-like speed. Remember that picture as we consider verse 2 in chapter 3. Look at verse 2. The noise of a whip. The noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. Nahum here points out two things in this terrible attack scene. Notice what he says. 
He points out noise over and over again, repeated, the noise of and brightness. Noise and brightness. Hear the sounds of the whips and the wheels and the horses and the chariots in this verse. This was the frightful noise of judgment coming upon them in force. And a force that they couldn't make headway against. In fact, remember what was happening. They were running the other way. And some were like, stop, stop, no, stand and fight. No way. We're gone. They ran like cowards. And of course, how could they stand against the army of the living God? But the Lord's army, their attack came with a dazzling brightness that was sharp and piercing and intimidating. Right? We see this in these words regarding their spears. But then what do we hear? Noise. And then silence. Noise. And then death. Look at verse 3b. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Beloved, the attack would be successful and many, many in the land would be killed. So many bodies of Sennacheribs and even of Nebuchadnezzar's armies would be found in the morning that those who walk through the streets and assess the scene, so to speak, couldn't walk without tripping over or stumbling into the bodies. They couldn't put one foot in front of the other without there being another body and having to step over another one. Reminds us of terrible war scenes even today, right? Where they're just massacres. Bodies stacked closely to each other, on top of each other, you can't walk without stumbling over them. But Nahum added to the reason for this coming slaughter then in verse 4. Look at that. Because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Beloved, both harlotry and sorcery point to wickedness. And yet, what was so seductive about the monstrosity that Nineveh was? What was so seductive about that? Sin is seductive. The power, the greatness, the wealth of the city, of the empire. This was the place to be. If you were a lover of darkness, this was the place to be and the people to be connected with and to serve under if you were a lover of death and an enemy of God. But remember and never forget that sin is seductive and it loves company. That sin and wickedness was a common thread and bond among the pagan nations and even on many occasions among God's people, sadly, was a tragedy. The Assyrians were like a beautiful, seductive harlot for whose favor the nations and the families were sacrificed. Like a sorcerer, 
One who plays with and wields the power of darkness. They, they were spiritually dead and unfaithful. They were spiritually dead and unfaithful. They undoubtedly had their gods and they worshipped them. They served their father, the devil. They were subject to pagan religion. But in speaking of the Chaldeans, who were a godless nation like the Assyrians, and in fact, remember that Medo-Babylonian army is the army that the Lord brought against the Assyrians to wipe them out here. But though even the Chaldeans were godless nations like the Assyrians, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 47, 9-11. That these two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries. Again, same reason. Harlotry and sorcery plague the Assyrians. This is also the same reason for the Chaldeans in their judgment. For the great abundance of your enchantments, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. But your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am. And there is no one else Beside me. What great blasphemy. For there is only one great I am. And it wasn't them. Therefore evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall on you. You will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly. Which you shall not know. As if the Chaldeans would prepare. As if they would even be warned. Like God did here with Nahum. Right? Get your defenses up. Go, go, go. Get ready. Get ready. Here comes the army. The Chaldeans wouldn't know. They wouldn't know where it came from, but it would fall upon them. Such grave and dreadful judgment from the Lord. But because Nineveh had, with her whoredoms and witchcraft, drawn others to shameful wickedness, therefore God would load her with shame and contempt. Look at verse seven, excuse me, 5 through 7, as we see this public humiliation. In verse 5, again, he says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you. Make you vile. And make you a spectacle. You know, in the first behold of warning that we saw here in Nahum, it was followed by burning and devouring and cutting off. However, this behold, would be full of public shame and embarrassment. The Lord was their true judge and executioner. God would show the nations what Nineveh was really like. Oh, the great Nineveh. The great and the arrogant Nineveh, the proud and the strong Nineveh, would be brought to shame. 
And the shame was likened to a whore looking beautiful in her dress and then having that dress pulled up exposing her nakedness where the beauty is instantly gone and her filth is clearly seen. And that would be the effect of the judgment against Syria. They were once magnificent and even esteemed, though it may be a, a fearful and intimidation type of esteem among the nations, but would instantly be the recipients of laughter and shame. They would be the laughing stock of the nations. They would be like a man put in the stocks in the public square for all to see and jeer at and throw things at and make fun of. Beloved, when God brings judgment against a people and a land, we see these same patterns here even today, don't we? As pride and arrogance rises and manifests itself in all forms of atrocities against God, and we see plenty of them today, as sin is, is a seductress, all those who commit such crimes against the Lord, they will reap what they have sown. Their great pride will lead to their great fall and their shame at the hand of God and his justice. Consider verse 7. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? My friends, those who showed no pity in the day of their power could expect to find no pity in the day of their fall. Many of the nations they conquered may very well have had those who bemoaned their conquering and the, the tragedy that it was. They may have mourned what happened. Comforters may have come to the people that remained to to try to encourage them and rebuild. But not Assyria. But not Assyria. They showed no pity, and no one would give them pity. Right? Matthew Henry said this, The greater men's show was in the day of their abused prosperity, the greater will their shame be in the day of their deserved destruction. There would be no mourners. Remember, even in biblical times, there were such things as professional mourners, right? Those who would be paid to come and to mourn. But there would be no mourners, professional or otherwise. There would be no comforters for Assyria. Indeed, they would be running and fleeing Nineveh's laid waste. There's no one to comfort. But I'll leave you with this. May we be a people of prayer and repentance. May we be those who take sin seriously, praying that God would work in us to sincerely repent of sin and turn to Christ regularly and consistently, individually as families, as a church, even in those in our land. Do not be deceived. We too have bloody cities and are in a bloody land. For peoples and nations will reap what they sow. 
And they will be brought to shame in the divine justice of God. And so therefore we must be a repentant and a humble people before the Lord. We need to be diligent in calling others to do the same, that they too would turn to Christ in true faith by His grace, for His grace. For if we take our sin lightly and say that our sin isn't really that big of a deal, then that struggle is real. We need to realize that we are also saying that God isn't that holy. But He is perfectly holy. We're saying that the sacrificial death of Christ really wasn't that necessary. And yet if we are to truly see the truth and the reality about sin, we must look to the cross of Christ. For there we see the true nature of sin. And Jesus paid for it all for us. We see with clarity the holiness and the righteousness of God there. And so may Nineveh be an example to us. May Nineveh's shame be an example to us of what we must not do. But what we must flee from as a people. That sin must not run rampant. That wickedness must not be what is flourishing amongst us. That we get so caught up and we are blind in the midst of it. But even as we are in a land and amongst a people who do not know Christ. And who spit in the face of Christ who say all sorts of atrocious things about him and against him and rail against him. May this increase our zeal all the more for sharing the gospel of Christ. That our gracious God would save many in his mercy. That they would no longer be the recipients of the just wrath of God for these many things but that they would be the recipient of His grace and His forgiveness as they belong to Him and are brought into the Beloved. Amen. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray together.